everyone, welcome to our event. This event is brought to you by Data Logs Club, which is a community of people who love data. We have weekly events, and today is one of such events. There are more events on our site. You can go check it out. There is a link in the description. Yeah, click on that link, and you'll see the events we have in our pipeline. Most of the events we have actually are for this week. Tomorrow, we have an amazing workshop where you'll learn some hands-on data engineering stuff, so make sure to check it out. Then, if for some reasons you have not subscribed yet to our YouTube channel, you need to do it now. Or not need, but should. I advise you to subscribe, because if you do, you will not miss out on any future streams like the one we have right now. And I know that this is an old interface. And by the way, we already have more than 30,000 subscribers. So thanks a lot for subscribing. And we have an amazing Slack community where you can hang out with other data enthusiasts. Check it out too. This week, we'll talk about the journey from being a data manager and in transitioning to data architect. And we will discuss it from both technical and leadership perspective. And today we have a special guest today, Luke. It's not the first time you see Luke here. Previously, he gave a talk about building a data lake house. And he mentioned many interesting things like being a data architect, being a data manager. And during that stream, during that talk, we thought that it would be a really awesome idea to have Luke again on our show, but as a podcast guest where we can talk more in details about his career, what he's doing, what he was doing, and how he made the transition. So Luke is the data lead at MyLight 150. So he'll probably tell us more what he do there. And he has more than 10 years of experience in the data space in various roles from being a data manager, doing database management, doing data engineering, being a product owner, being a tech lead, being a data architect, and being a data lead. So a lot of stuff. So yeah, thanks a lot for finding time to join us today for this interview, Luke. So. Let's start. And before we go into our main topic, let's begin with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yeah. So in a very, let's say, in a nutshell, as we say, I was a data manager back in 2013, working in the UK in a company called Six Sense by now. And there I was doing a lot of data management, so gathering data and just making reporting available for other people, like stakeholders, mainly dealing with civil engineers and the civil engineering industry in general, the construction industry. Then I become interested into the data engineering side of things, just because I was maybe frustrated a little bit with this, gathering all data together and mix and matching CSVs, XML, and whatever the format it could be together, became a data engineer. So it was really technical part of data engineering, like ETL, crude operations, so on. And then as time goes by, you focus more on what are the people requiring in terms of data and needs, what are their needs. And so I took positions as a data consultant at CGI back in France. And then I was a product owner, a technical lead in a sort of data factory team. And right now I'm the that I lead at uh, MyLight 150. And what do I do there? It's a mix of two hats, maybe a bit more. First one is really technical. So we put together as 
you may see it in the previous talk we gave, the data lake house. This was a very operational side of thing, let's say. And the second hat is about the management of the team. So I guess the, we prepared a bit of a series of questions just to transition through the career and through those really technical to somehow more of a leadership role. So that's it with my background, I guess. So when I heard the term data management, so what I had in mind is more like managing a team. <laughs> so what do you do now? But from what you described, I I understood that it's um, a different role, right? So it's more like an analyst role in a non-tech company where you would get like a lot of uh, different, like a lot of different data from different data sources, and your job was to prepare reports. Yeah, this was exactly this. My customers that were basically civil engineers. They required a lot of data to analyze the, the good health of their structure. And by the way, the practice is called the structural health monitoring, where you look at the structure and you check for cracks, settlements, and so on. And my role was just to take data from a lot of sensors we were installing in the city and buildings and just mix and matching them together to provide trends and analysis. So in the today's nomenclature, I would say, or data roles, this looks more like a data analyst role, but at that time it was called data management mm -hmm. because it, it involved a little bit more than just that analysis, like putting the data together and just playing mm -hmm. it and sharing it. And also it, there was all of this data disclosure side, you know? So mm -hmm. that's why it was called data management at that time. Mm -hmm. It's like a combination of data analyst and data engineer. Yeah, more of a data analyst side, actually. Mm -hmm. And then I transitioned to data engineering mm -hmm. because I I was spending like days, hours of my days just mixing and matching this data. And also, I have a civil engineering degree. Mm -hmm. Nothing to deal with data or IT or whatever. But I was always taking the computer science oriented specialties, you know, in school. So I was very aware of how to program and how to deal with databases and so on. So naturally, I wanted to automate my work of binding all of this data together. And I remember I was spending probably 8 to 10, 12 hours a day mix and matching data. And in the end, I was staying uh, like one, two more hours just to automate a bit of it. And then the next day, one, two more hours, you automate another bit of it. And in the end, you work extra hours at the beginning, but you have a fully automated process a few weeks later. So this was what basically got me into data engineering. Automating mm -hmm. that analyst work got me into data engineering. Mm -hmm. Because I was, okay, if I automated the end of the process, Maybe it's going to be interesting to automate the, the from the data source to the consumption of the data. And I really enjoyed automating the end result. And so I was like, okay, I could basically do this for a living, like automating mm -hmm. the data processes. So this is how I got into data engineering. Mm -hmm. So you became a data engineer within the same company, right? Yeah, exactly. 
the data management at, at Sixth Sense was very broad in terms of practice. So we were installing IoT devices and you had to configure the, the data loggers, for example, to retrieve data from site, the ETL process to load it into a database, and then the, the reporting process as well from database to the software solution we were providing. All of this required role to maintain the full data pipeline. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the role was very, there were a lot of different aspects to the data manager position. It was a very broad role, but you could do mostly data analysts, a bit of data engineering. And sometimes when you had to do statistics on your data to understand the trends and so on, it was data analyst slash a bit of data scientist to understand what mm -hmm. causing the trend or whatever. So very broad role data management and I really liked the data engineering side of this, which was maybe the when I think about it, it was maybe linked to the fact that I, I really liked software programming and this was the part that I could control over. Maybe this is just me being uh, liking the controlling side of it. But also as you mentioned, you have a degree in civil engineering. So for you all this data from sensors that was coming from sensors about cracks, settlements, and all this stuff, you could really make sense from this data, right? You could make sense of this data. You could understand what's happening there. You have all this domain knowledge. So for you, maybe, did it actually help you with the transitioning from being a data manager to data engineering? What helped with the transitioning was me spending a lot of time on my spare time learning about software engineering good practices, mm -hmm. reading about all the database management and the crude operations and all of this, you know, more like investing my personal time on learning the data engineering things. But this is true that as I knew who was going to consume the data we were producing, it was a big plus because I knew when something was wrong, I could diagnose where the data quality problem started to happen or whatever, you know. So in the end, this first job as a data manager transitioning into data engineering was really the perfect job because it was in the civil engineering industry. I was reporting to civil engineers, construction managers, but I got a, a two fits inside the data space straight away. Mm -hmm. So... It was the, the perfect uh, transition from my degree. So mm -hmm. we are talking about the transition from data manager to mm -hmm. data architect, of course, via data engineering. But mm -hmm. the transition was actually mm -hmm. from civil engineering background to the data space. And if you look today in the market, a lot of people are switching careers. And usually it's, they do it after a, a few years in the work, like they do, I don't know, they work in finance for a few years and then they realize, okay, what I really liked was the data, whatever. But in my case, straight after my diploma, like the graduation, I knew I wanted to do something else than civil engineering. And it's very fun because at the in the school where I, where I studied, there was always these charts about what the people in the school are becoming like 10 years down the road, you know? And there was this category of, 15 to 20% of the students, they work in a field that is in no way related to what they studied. So 
I'm in this category right now. <laughs> yeah, life is interesting, right? You never know. Because, uh, I don't know, you graduated from school, you have no idea what you'll do in 10 years, because like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's very difficult to know. So and then, uh, I don't know, parents say, like, yeah, become a civil engineer because it's a well-paid job, right? And then you go there, you study, only to find out that you like other things more. Yeah, but it's yeah. a journey, right? Exactly. And sometimes, you know, when you look for a new job or you are interviewing in the interviewing process, they, you always have this classical HR question coming in, like, where do you see yourself five years down the line, 10 yeah. years down the line? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. For me, <laughs> my discipline did not really exist. And 10 years ago, I was destined to be a civil engineer. So who knows? <laughs> so for you, what was the most difficult part when you did the transition? I guess as a civil engineer, you did not study software engineering and you needed to invest a lot of time in learning that, right? Learning all these data engineering fundamentals. Yeah. Apart from that, like what were the most significant challenges that you faced there and how did you overcome them? Yeah, the um, thing is when during the last decade, a lot of things happened in data space. As you know, IoT became a thing, so it produced a lot of data. I was in the IoT slash civil engineering industry. I can testify about it. Of course, you had a, the classical business intelligence practice, which was somewhat well-established. You know, people doing their SSIS packages, uh, building their data pipeline with SQL databases, reporting about turnover, margin, whatever, you know. SSIS is this tool from Microsoft. This is like the integration service where you drag and drop things you connect with uh, the mouse, right? So like different squares. Yeah. And then this thing somehow works at the end, right? Somehow it works because you do your high-level data pipeline in a sort of low-code, no-code fashion. But mm -hmm. then still you need to call like stored procedures and you need still to build those mm -hmm. SQL, TSQL, uh, Transact SQL. You need mm -hmm. to build code anyway. You are just... Mm -hmm having a nice interface to architect your code somehow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, it's built into the... It's been a while since I saw this thing. Yeah, it's been a while as well. Right now, it's Data Factory, Airflow, whatever. Those things are basically uh, the SSIS legacy, if I may. Mm -hmm. So we have these these days. And everything is cloud-based. So yeah, the IoT, the, the volume of data, the fact that the cloud was somewhat booming as well. If I remember, the transition happened around 2018 for us. And if, I'm sure if you Google like Azure adoption graphs or whatever, if you are at home, just do this and probably you will see a big spike 2017 to 2020. This is where a lot of companies just shifted to the cloud. So this happened in addition to the big volume of data. And this became somewhat of a, a new wild west, you know, because you had those new Azure, those new cloud services, and a lot of data to deal with, and your classic documentation or resources, like how to build the SSIS package and whatever, was not really relevant for yourself anymore. And you had to find other communities and so on. And so this was the challenge, actually, to transition from a place where the volume is increasing and uh, people are shifting to cloud to the cloud and you are arriving into this new space where you have 
everything to somewhat rebuild, but you have the good practices and concepts and you need to have strong basics, uh, if I may. So the best thing to overcome this challenge was to just keep yourself updated on how people do things. Usually Stack Overflow was filled with questions about people having problems in, with those new technologies, with those new services. And a lot of communities have been built around those platforms. On my case, I, I took a few notes uh, just to make sure I did not forget anything. It's uh, I tried a lot of scripting languages. I ended up using Python because it was the most used in the industry. Just I didn't think more about it. I'm going to use this. Okay. Same for the cloud. You had the AWS at that time. The Google Cloud was somewhat there, and the Azure was just investing a lot of it. So same, a lot of so my company was using the Azure Cloud, of course, and a lot of jobs, postings anyway, they were recruiting for people using Python and the Azure Cloud. So for me, it was the, let's say, a very data-driven and practical choice to go for this. But in the end, as a feedback, all the clouds, they are really more similar than dissimilar. What you will find in a platform will look mostly the same into another cloud provider. Don't focus on, I would say, do not focus on getting certifications to prove that you know the cloud or whatever, because what is the most important is the to grasp the, the very strong basics of what is a cred operation, what are the types of services you have access to to store your data, what are your options to build, what are your tools available in this platform. And if you know that you need a hammer to just insert a nail into a wood plank, you will find your wood plank, you will find your nail, you will find your hammer into this new platform, no worries. Mm -hmm. This is what I will provide as well. So that's uh, advice you share as a data manager right now. I mean, data engineering manager, because you hire data engineers currently, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually hired one data engineer, which has the guy has more experience than myself on the lot of BI and data architecture side of things, you know. But still, when it comes to big data and using Spark and new platform like the Databricks and whatever, there is still a transition to do. But when I hired, basically, the interview was more focused on for me, you have some scars about the, about doing data pipeline projects, you know, and tell me how it's going to go wrong and what did you do? And somewhat challenging the strong opinions on good practices versus reality, etc. So yeah, when I hire for data engineering role, I don't look for perfect certifications. I look for experience and I look for the scale of the projects people have been working on, the scale of the teams they have been working on, and the, in general, the attitude towards solving the problem with the tools you have. You know, If people are afraid, for example, when I say, yeah, we are on the Azure cloud, if they are afraid or they are like, I only know AWS, for me, it's somewhat of a red flag because I would prefer an answer like, yeah, the clouds are more similar than dissimilar. I know AWS, but I will adapt, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is just about the mindset of answering the question more than the mm -hmm. answer itself. Okay, fair enough.
So I just looked at the time and I see that we spent most of the time talking about the data engineering, your transition from data manager to data engineer. But we also wanted to talk about your other transition, other than the transition you did from a data engineer to a data architect. But before we talk about the details of your transition, I was wondering what actually is a data architect? Who actually is a data architect? What do they do? What kind of stuff, uh, what kind of responsibilities they have? Yeah, that's a very good question. And actually, I had a couple of students a few weeks ago interviewing me just on this particular question because they had to fill a form about what is a data architect to have this new position in their school, you know? And Actually, the, the first answer, the first bit of the answer that was that data architect is not a junior position. Like you do not graduate as a data architect. This is a role that you acquire when you have been probably working into the different areas of data management from hand to end. This was the first bit. So it, it's an experienced role because you need to be aware that you need to architect data. So it's like, from the data source to the staging area to your data warehousing part and then building data maps for the people to consume the data. And at each stage, you need to understand, the, for example, the, 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 how the data is being produced and how the data is being consumed. And most of the time, there are automated systems like IoT producing data. In that case, it's actually the, the easiest part of the, the data engineering. But when there are people producing data, you need to understand the processes. And then when there are people consuming data, you also need to understand the use case and what is the final result of their analysis and how they are binding data and so on. And I think the data architect, it's about bridging the gap between the, this ETL, crude operations, very technical, and the people using data, like producing and consuming it. So there are a lot of definitions of data architect, but mostly what is important is not a junior position. You need to have experience on the full chain. You need to focus on the processes and the people and the use cases of the time more than the technical side of the things. And that will be the two main points, I would say, uh, that describe a data architect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You need to know about modeling of the data because people are going to use the data that you have somehow created, pre-prepared for them. So you need to make sure that your technical process of extracting, collecting, and managing modeling data matches. It's good technically, but it's also good business-wise. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's about bridging the gap you said between uh, the requirements and the implementation, right? Exactly, yeah. And for that, you need to understand processes, use cases, what the final results more or less should be, yeah. right? And it's a very technical role, so you need to have experience doing things end-to-end -end from, you said, source, staging, warehousing, data mart, like all these things need to make sense. And then finally, you mentioned that you need to have a good understanding of modeling data, right? So like... Yeah. Um, how exactly data looks like in a staging area, how exactly data looks in the, uh, in the warehouse, how the data looks like in the data market, right? But at the end of the day, okay, you spent a lot of time 
talking to different stakeholders. You spent a lot of time talking to engineers who are going to implement that. What is it do you do? What is the main, let's say, outcome? Is it like a document that describes that at this step you do that? Like there are some diagrams with arrows showing how the data flows or, or something else? Yeah, yeah. What is the output of my work? The most important thing is, I would say, team alignment. Because when you have, you have a data project, it's not only one team creating the data, managing it, serving it, and analyzing it. This would be the perfect scenario, of course. But usually you have a team that is creating data, another team analyzing the data, and another team processing the data. And the outcome of a good data architecture, I would say, is an optimized data process, of course, but this is only technical. The most important output of a data architect is a team alignment when hmm. it comes to producing data in a way that is usable then by the pipeline, in a way that, and storing data in a way that is then usable for the business. And of course, you will have a lot of tools to help you to do this. Most of the time, as I showed in the previous talk, it looks like a, a massive bowl of spaghettis, you know, with all of your data pipe processes in, and all the flows of data from A to B to C, etc. But these are only tools. The most important outcome is to have the, the alignment on the teams that are producing, extracting, transforming, and consuming data. This is the number one output of a data architect, I would say, mm -hmm. making sure it's smooth and ready. Mm -hmm. Usually, I guess, uh, in order to have this alignment, there needs to be some documentation. So there needs to be some written piece or like this uh, bowl of spaghetti diagram, as you said. Yeah. Like there should be something, not physical, but something like in your documentation, right? Yeah. That describes, okay, these are the, the requirements, these are the limitations, I don't know, these are, um, like, I don't know, the, the stakeholders, these are users, these are the requirements, and this is how we want to implement this. And all these th teams, like the team that creates data, the team that processes data, the team that analyzes data, all have access to this document. And they say, okay, this is what we want indeed. Yeah, usually, if you have a dream project where you live in theory land. Dream project, okay. This is perfect to do, like, you can spend a lot of time like doing a specification about mm -hmm. detail about all the data process. It will go like this from this source connected with this protocol. You will get the data and you will store it in this way into this table, then that way with those columns and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But reality has shown that whatever you plan, don't plan too detailed because there are a lot of things that are going to derail you from your plans. And you need to have, a, the most important is to have common good practices and concepts, like what is the quality level of data expected to arrive in the bronze level, you know? Like you don't, you can't accept a lot of null values or things like this. And then if you ingest for the first time your data and you realize with the quick analysis that this is garbage, you probably have a data process to improve, like the way people are entering data in forms or whatever, so that they do not skip the question or they do not select the default null value or whatever, you know, make sure that your applicative, your 
UI or whatever, helps you to make proper data, let's say. So yeah, this is more about common sense and good practices, like make sure you have a, a good data arriving in your bronze level, you know, and then understand how people are going to use it so that you say, okay, you will need to analyze those analytical metrics, let's say. You want to analyze stores data, for example. So you have the name of the store, the region where it is located, the period where the sales happens, the margin of the sales, and so on. And all of this gives you your dimensions of analysis, like geography, time, stores, article you are, you are selling, for example. And then you have your metrics, which are the turnover, margin, number of sales. I don't know. You need to basically build... Stakeholders give you this information. They say, okay, we care about these things, right? Yeah. So at the end, when we analyze the data, this is a dashboard, or this is what we want to see in the dashboard, right? So we want to see these kind of metrics, right? They tell you that, and then you need to define, talk to other teams who create data, who analyze data, who process data, and you work this out. Like you need to understand what kind of dimensions are there, what kind of metrics are there, like all these uh, bronze things you mentioned. Bronze is like the staging area, right? Or what, what yeah, is that? Bronze is the very raw data, then you have silver uh -huh. and gold. And what you are discussing with the stakeholders, which are going to consume data, is more of what should the gold layer look like so I can analyze. Uh -huh. And then what you are discussing with the people that are producing data is more about the what should be the acceptable quality level that you can drop into the bronze, that you can dump into the bronze layer, you know. And then with the your data engineering team, data analyst team, you discuss, okay, I got this, I need that. How do I mix and match? How do I bind it, how do I transform it? So it's the appropriate level of quality for my analysis. The most important is you need to discuss with people and usually stakeholders, they don't say, I have an analytical dimension that is the geography and I have a metric that is my turnover. Never. Okay, maybe with very lucky people, you will have those kind of discussions, but usually it goes like, I need to analyze the the margin in this region. So nowhere in this sentence, like I need to analyze the margin in this region of the world, nowhere in this sentence, they mention the dimensions and the metrics. You need to discuss and say, okay, your metric is the margin and your dimension is the geography. And maybe this analysis, if I do this, and if I manage to store my data in the proper way, you could be able to scale this analysis and have your margin in all the regions of the world. And so your analysis is not only for this area that you want right now, this is your quick win, what you need to output to your CEO for next week, but maybe what you want is a more scalable process to be able to reproduce very quickly your analysis on another region at another time, whatever. And this is the kind of discussions you have with your stakeholders just to make sure that you are going to store the data in the proper way. Like you will have your fact table and then you will have your geographical dimension and your store dimension and your article dimension and your fact table will have all of those columns that help you to build those metrics and so on. Mm -hmm. This is where your technical side mm -hmm. but the role of the data architect is really understanding what to build, why, 
this is the the key role. Like how exactly they will use it once it's built, right? So what exactly, what kind of questions they want to have answers for, right? Exactly. What kind of analysis, how exactly they will use it and maybe also what sort of decisions they will make based on whatever they want, right? Yeah, exactly. And usually what happens in a company is you have different departments. So in our case, for example, we will have supply chain, finance, and sales. They will all analyze the quantity of stocks we have, but for very different reasons. And you will end up building a report for the sales, another for the finance, another for the supply chain. But still, the data that you use at the origin is the same for all of them. So if you, as an architect, you need also to be aware of this so that you can put together all of those developments to build a sort of core data model or strong foundation to build all of those different uses, use cases. So it's not only from source to consumer, but also you will have a lot of consumers and there is another dimension that is the transversal dimension of the work. Like to me, it sounds that this work involves mostly communication, right? So you need to, first of all, speak with stakeholders, understand what the requirements are, how it's going to be used. And then you need to spend a lot of time talking to teams to understand how maybe what is the current status, how this can be implemented, and then come up with this design document mm -hmm. to make sure that all these teams align, right? Yeah. So what do you say that most of the time as a data architect, you spend most of your time talking with other people? Or what's the breakdown? Like how exactly it looks like? What do you say it's like 80% communication, 12% like documentation writing, or like do you do any hands-on stuff? Like how does a typical day look like? Yeah. So it, it really depends, I would say, on your, of the company. If I talk for myself, the previous year has been really focused on the technical side of things. So I was mostly hands-on, somehow building the platform with the rest of the team. So making sure all the data was flowing from the sources to the data lake house, you know. And right now we are in this process where the team knows how to do all of this. We have the common set of practice of practices. And the next stage is to finally have time to discuss with the stakeholders about what is that they need and build those a better gold layer, I would say, focus on the gold layer of the data mart, of the data warehouse. So bronze and silver sold, and now we are focusing the effort on gold. So the role has been shifting from like 80% maybe of dealing with technical people and maybe 20% of dealing with stakeholders to the actual opposite, where once you have the data, you can just spend more time focusing on the discussing what you want. And so it's going to be 80% stakeholder, 20% technical, for example. So it really depends on the phase of the project where you are, I would say. But my one advice is stakeholders, they really want to see that you are progressing on the project, on the data they want. So you should focus more on the stakeholders. As a priority, you should focus more on stakeholder management than really the team management once the good practices has been set up, has been agreed within your team. So the first thing is going to be to agree on the good practices, build an end-to-end -end use case, 
say, okay, this is how we do this. This is our standard. And then you can free time for yourself to deal with the stakeholders. Yeah. And right now, this is where I'm in, into the, mm -hmm. if I talk for myself. So from what I understood from you, this is a quite, at least what you do, this is quite technical role. So you are still pretty hands-on with building things with the rest of the team, but still there is this component of talking with stakeholders and it's your job as a data architect to actually inform them what is the progress, which stage is it currently. And of course, if there are any questions, if something is not clear, it's your job to approach the stakeholders and clarify the requirements. Like when you said that you need to have, uh, I don't know, analyzed margins in these regions of the world, did you mean country level or did you mean maybe, I don't know, county level, right? So you need to go to them and ask that, right? Yeah. So I don't believe that if I am here in all the meetings where we are specifying things, the data team can scale basically. So the transition is about somehow empowering your team so that they can then, once they know the good practices and how to do things, do it for themselves. Like the data analyst going with the business, discussing what they need, and then discussing with the data engineer. And data engineering practice, they are going to know how to do things in an optimized fashion. And the data analyst, they are going to know what the business requires, you know. And I think a role as a data, a part of the role of a data, as a data architect is to help both practices to communicate well together, make sure that mm -hmm. communication is smooth between data engineering and data analyst. And also that you have the, the communication is smooth between the data analyst and the stakeholders. It's more of a, the end goal is, it looks more like a product owner slash mm -hmm. data if I'm a product, yeah. a product manager, you know, yeah. if I use like taking naming. So it looks like you want to teach people how to speak so you can kind of go get out of the team and so they work without you, right? So what I mean by the, this is uh, like, if you're involved in everything, then you become the bottleneck and nothing is moving, right? Exactly. So what you want to do is uh, set up these uh, best practices. So they know how to talk, who to talk, when to talk. So then you can like step away and watch this thing work without your participation, right? Yes. So stepping away and just watching it go, it's never going to happen. You know, there is okay. no, you still need to get the, so, so then you focus at a higher, let's say strategic level, you know, where you know what the company is going to look like in three months, six months, whatever. And you need to make sure that the efforts of your teams in terms of priority more, that the, the time they are spending doing things, it's aligned with the short, mid and long-term objective of your company. And I think this is also a, a part of the product manager or the data architect, you know, depending on the size or the typology of your team or whatever. But the, the most important thing is, you know how technically how to do things, you make sure communication is smooth and then you empower your team so that they know how to do individually. So you can scale transversally your work. You can just then focus on prioritizing the work of the team so that it aligns with the company's objectives. Does it make sense? It does, it does. Yeah. Cool. And then uh, I see a question about handling 
how you adapt and stay relevant in the field. Because my experience, so I was kind of doing also working in architectural role. And what I noticed, even though it wasn't related to data engineering, it was related more to machine learning, but doesn't matter. So what I noticed is the more I spend time working with stakeholders, communicating, aligning teams, the less time I have on the coding side, on the technical side. And what happened after half a year of me doing this thing is I became very non-hands-on, right? So I stopped coding. And then a similar thing, I spoke with other people doing like working in, I don't know, as principal engineers uh, or you know, architects, all of them confirmed that, yeah, they went through something similar, right? So the similar process where they started doing more high-level stuff. And then with time, they became kind of less uh, hands-on, right? And with time, because new tools come out, like, I don't know, DPT exists now and it's very popular. Five years ago, it wasn't there. And like, if your data engineering experience comes from five years ago, you might not even know like how to use DPT. You just know that it exists. Right. And the same with machine learning and like these new tools keep appearing. There's some buzz about them. But if you kind of lose touch with the ground, if mm-hmm. you become too high level, right, you risk staying irrelevant, right? So you risk yeah, you know, yeah. forgetting yeah. things. So how do you do that? So in your case, you said like you still try to be hands-on, but like, my question is like, how do you find time to do all that? It's it's very very funny you mentioned DBT actually because this is exactly what is happening to the data stack and the data team and myself mm-hmm. here at my light is we are working on this gold level, you know, gold data level. And so I have this new data engineer in the team, which is like a very good individual contributor, like. This is what he likes and is meant to do. And for DBT, so speaking about DBT, he is coming from a very SQL-based background, and the data stack we had was not really manageable in terms of the goal level. And DBT, like, it's perfect for this area there where it's building automatically your acyclic diagram and your pipeline and scheduling everything for you and so on. But as I was spending a lot of time doing specifications or stakeholder management, I couldn't like install DBT myself, set up the pipeline, build all of those Jinja routines and so on, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And actually, I did not touch DBT at all. And the data engineer was the only one dealing with this, but we were doing those one-ones Every week, I have a 30-minute meeting with all of the team members. And during those one-ones, there is, of course, the synchronization of the work that has been done, et cetera, et cetera. But part of it was, okay, show me what you have done and go into details because I want to see that you what you did and I want to understand it. And, of course, you have other high-level things to do, but... Those one-ones, when you are managing a team of very technical individual contributors, they are your perfect occasions to stay relevant on the technologies or tools you are implementing on your data stack, for example. So this is the first place where you learn, ask questions, try, share your screen, you show the code, you show how it works, you run a pipeline end-to-end, etc., etc. Of course, you you were not doing the hands-on, but you know that if shit happens, basically, 
you will be able to be a second set of eyes on the work of the person and be able to debug together the pipeline or whatever. And you can help the team on getting the good practices on new tools, even though you have not implemented it yourself. You just share the knowledge about what you did in the past, what works and what doesn't. So the team then somehow empowered, as we say, and just take the decision for themselves. But this is your very good way to stay up to date and relevant is those one-one with your individual technical contributors. And the second thing is stay up to date, like you read the blogs, you subscribe to very good seminars, podcasts like the Data Talks or any other like that you like into your fields, you know. Stay up to date with watching webinars. And when you have something that sparked your attentions or excitement, you know, you just maybe spend a couple of hours during your work week or your evening just trying to make it work for a little project or a sub-part of your project as a proof of concept, you know. Build a proof of concept at work that will include this new technology and see if it's worth it. If it's not worth mm -hmm. it, good. You had the hands-on experience, maybe, and you tried it, you benchmarked it, and no good, not for you, next. Mm -hmm. But at least okay. you are aware mm -hmm. of what's happening and mm -hmm. how to use it. So basically, if I try to summarize what you said, is uh, look at trends, like what is exactly is kind of hot, what people talk about. And second, try to squeeze in some time in your week, in your calendar, where you actually get some of these tools that people talk about and implement some sort of proof of concept, right? Yeah, yeah, technology watching, you know, this is uh, the, the term. About, yeah, just build yourself a community on LinkedIn so you can be aware of, like, find an expert about Power BI, find an expert about data engineering, find an expert newsletter about data science, find data talk about machine learning, whatever, you know, and just have a lot of streams of input that you can keep aware of the trends of the new things and have a lot, like not only one, have a lot of them. So you can see things that are repeating and you see trends and you see, okay, this one talked about this technology, DBT, 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 like if everybody is talking about DBT, you should be trying it. Otherwise you are missing out on an industry mm. trend that could be bad for you in the long run. Mm -hmm. So this is how I missed out personally with all this GPT stuff. So now I have no idea how it works. It feels like all the data scientists know what exactly is happening with all, with all these LLMs, but I have no idea. I just I can just use them. The same with GPT, though. It's similar. That's okay. GPT is quite recent. And a lot of people are just diving into the high uh -huh. of GPT, you know? Mm -hmm. Good for them. But the, I think we are in a very busy world, you know? And mm -hmm. at some point, you will find the time to just take a deep breath, go out of the water, you know, and just mm -hmm. have a look at this GPT thing. Mm -hmm. And by then, everything will have somehow consolidated, you know, like this is good GPT stuff, this is bad GPT stuff, this is mm -hmm. average GPT stuff and whatever. And you will mm -hmm. have some more insights than just like trying everything straight away as it goes out. You will lose a lot of energy if you focus on GPT right now, you know. Just mm -hmm. yeah. know what you can do Keep updated mm -hmm. about what it can do and at some point just consolidate everything you know and do a deep dive at that time, I guess, mm -hmm. when it's somehow mature, mm -hmm. even if yeah. at the speed at which things are just yeah. in these days, it's 
maturity is very obsolete concept. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And the problem is like, apart from GPT, there are so many other things that are also like trending. Like you open Twitter or LinkedIn and then people talk about like, I don't know, all these yeah. other things. And then it's like, okay, <laughs> how do I find extra 24 hours in my day? Right. Yeah. I, we have a few questions. So Mohammed is asking, how do you manage data specifications while setting up a data architecture pipeline for a project? Is it something you do in parallel or you first, uh, I don't know, come up with uh, data specs? Yeah. Then pipeline, first pipeline and specs, or how does it look like? I live in a planet near a black hole, and they are, I spend one hour here, it's like seven years on Earth, you know? <laughs> That's convenient. Yeah, it's very complicated. I think the, a bit touched on this earlier, but the, the only way to escape the fact that you can't clone yourself or you can't work 48 hours a day is to scale your knowledge by giving it to your team. So then you can do a bit of both. And once the work you have done in terms of specification is mature enough, introduce the data analyst, introduce the data engineer, and then start your the, the work, you know. Mm -hmm. So first specs and then pipeline. But like, then I guess draft specs, right? You don't want to have like a super detailed specification where everything is like perfect and then when you try to implement this nothing works right well this does not work if you do a very like waterfall project where you design mm -hmm. do a technical design de detailed technical specification and so on and then you build what you will build will not be relevant when you will have built it so just try to sketch end-to-end -end what it should look like Try to get the customer feedback, your stakeholder feedback as soon as possible. So you know if you have been doing something wrong, you have some insights from the domain experts, you know, and they will tell you, yeah, but look at this. The turnover is not good at all on this. You should not take into account those kind of articles because they are transportation costs. And this is nothing that we include into the codes that we send to our clients or whatever. Anyway, you can have those domain insights, expertise, knowledge, very fast if you just draft quickly end-to-end, -end, and then you refine with them, you bring more data, you specify, and you iterate. This is the, the most important concept. We are, I think, in a world that is, I don't know if it's largely agile, but in the tech industry, at least, we push those agility concepts more and more, you know? Do not over-specify, do not over-optimize as well your code uh, when you are doing things straight away, but try to get the client feedback straight away so you can iterate very quickly on getting the 80% of the result the fastest way possible. Mm -hmm. So in summary, so you scratch an end-to-end specification, very drafty, you get feedback on that, then incorporate the feedback, implement the POC pipeline, then again, get feedback because this POC probably produces something, right? So then get feedback, interpret that, perhaps into specification, adapt the specification, change the POC and repeat, right? And at some point, yeah. POC becomes like a proper project where you like, you know, fix all the technical debt, but like it shouldn't happen immediately, right? Yeah, yeah. So usually this is a trap. You are going to build a POC and you will end up with a lot of technical debt and a big mm -hmm. refactor of your code. 
so you can make it scalable. If you have built previously projects, you have somehow templates about how to do things like ingestion template, transformation template, creation of data marts template, Power BI template with the appropriate colors and whatever, you know. Make sure you template things that are that have shown results at scale in other areas of your projects. You know, on other projects, make sure you reuse what you know how to do, because then you're just gonna go fast. You need a new source. Okay, I got my template from the data source ingestion. Bim, API. Okay, API ingestion function. I get it. Straight into bronze, merge into silver. Then okay, they need. A geographical dimension. Okay, I know that I have my postal code or my country database somewhere, you know. I'm just going to reuse this for the proof of concept. And then as you are reusing bits and pieces that you built on previous projects, these are the things that are already used in production by other projects. So you have a, a basis of elements that are reusable and you go from proof of concept, which is somehow already scalable, modulo the differences and the specificities of your proof of concept, but you will go fast into the industrialization phase if you reuse templates. Build templates. This is the... So it's also a part of your job as a data architect to know which templates are already there, which templates exist, which templates you need to build, update, etc. right? So and yes. you need to think about, you know, things you build in terms of templates. Like, okay, like I see multiple projects, and this thing here kind of repeats, right? So there's some redundancy. So let's make a template out of this. Right? Yeah, and yeah. you as a data architect need to watch this out, right? So you need to look for this. Yes. And as a, you, so you need to be aware of the templates. You need to be aware as a, so you have your data engineering hat, you know, where you know that you have this somehow software engineer side of you that tells you, okay, if I'm repeating something three times, I may want to build something common for that I'm going to reuse, you know, like ingest from bronze. This is my function. I will put it somewhere. And then I will use it in this project, in this project, in this project. But I will call the same code base that I will reuse into the different projects. And the data architect and data engineer and software engineer side of the, of the personality you are, you know, should be aware that you can't build the perfect generic function to solve it all, you know, otherwise we'll be out of work uh, since a long time ago. But you need to balance what is generic and reusable and scalable with what is specific on every project. You can't build a key that is going to open all of the doors in the world, you know. But 80% mm -hmm. of the doors is good enough. I will open 20% mm -hmm. remaining with my specific keys I will build. You'll pick the locks, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, we should be wrapping up. And I see that we still have uh, quite a few unanswered questions. So would it be okay if uh, Mohammed and other people would reach out to you on LinkedIn with these questions? Sure, sure, sure. The link will be in the description, as you will say. <laughs> yes, exactly. There will be my LinkedIn profile in the description. If you have questions, I didn't answer because I'm very verbose when I speak. Yeah, me too. Reach out. It will be a pleasure to answer. <laughs> Thanks, Lick. It was, as always, great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, time flies. Like, we are already over time. 
So it yep. was really big pleasure to speak with you again. So maybe yeah. we should repeat because we actually, uh, funny thing, we did not discuss what exactly you did for the transition. We talked mostly about like yeah. the transition from uh, data management to data engineering. And then we talked about the role of the data architect. But we kind of missed the actual transition. But I, for me, it was interesting. I hope for everyone else, it was also interesting. And yeah, thanks again for your time. Thanks everyone for joining us today and have a great week. All right, thanks. See ya. See ya. Bye.